Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Mike Wallace is an internationally recognized expert in the ESG and sustainability field. For over 25 years, he has been advising corporations, nonprofits, and government agencies on the development and implementation of sustainable business and investment strategies. He works with corporate executive teams to help them understand sustainability risks and turn them into opportunities. Mike has helped launch a range of sustainability programs inside organizations, created new initiatives, and helped companies expand into new markets. He has authored numerous articles on sustainability and ESG issues and was a contributor to Climate Change, a Guide to Carbon Law and Practice. Carbon accounting in 2023 is one of the issues we will discuss in this Sustainable Finance Podcast episode. But first, I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning into this podcast, you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch with building your perfect team. Hello, Mike, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's an honor to be here with you again. Yeah, listen, we're going to jump right into the conversation today and talk uh, initially about carbon accounting. Uh, So let's begin uh, with carbon accounting and your reasons for moving to Persephone two years ago. Yeah, so Paul, I was working with ERM, a globally recognized sustainability consultancy. I was a partner there. Um, The field was changing dramatically, and the last stage of my work with ERM was focusing on the broader ESG suite of services, so working on social and human capital-related work with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, but also working on ESG ratings and rankings um, at ERM, Uh, advising a lot of companies in their efforts to understand their broader ESG footprint. And more and more conversations were going into the area of carbon commitments, carbon accounting, and climate change-related issues. Mm -hmm. I had a number of clients that had come to me in a bit of a panic because the CEOs had actually made commitments publicly that the chief sustainability officers weren't ready to commit to. And Uh that's kind of common in our field (laughs) where the CEO will make some statement in the public domain that is not necessarily fully vetted across the group of, of employees. That just is the way it is. Sure. Um, met some colleagues at Persephone, um, and particularly the chief executive, Kentaro Kawamari. I did a demo of the tool in its earliest stages, so version 1.0, if you will. Um, and I'd never seen anything that was quite so elegant and simply uh, laid out to allow you as the executive to understand your footprint. As I do as a consultant, I dive deeper in the conversation with Kentaro and we dive into scope one, two, and three and see all the underlying um, components of the software. And I'd never worked for a software company, never really had thought about working for a software company until I saw this particular demonstration. Took it back to my colleagues at ERM, 
goaded around to some of the partners there. Um, they were not ready to go down a path of collaboration with ERM at, or with Persephone at that point, but come to be, you know, to, as of about a month ago, we are now in a partnership between Persephone and ERM, and we can talk about that a little bit more. But it was really, Paul, it was the technology itself, uh, the need for all of us to figure out how to automate carbon accounting. That's the only way we can scale our, our global efforts to understand these things. And with all the different commitments and net zero uh, statements that are coming out out there, what's the underlying DNA behind all of it? The greenhouse gas protocol and understanding understanding your numbers, scope one, two, and three. So, Mike, this is a really interesting beginning to our conversation because clearly technology is what's driving this entire process of development today, and it's what's got everybody not only really excited about what's happening, but uh, a lot of folks confused, uh, some people angry, uh, many people really excited about the future. You've been in the field for over 25 years, so please tell our listeners about your evolution in the ESG and sustainability field and things that you have seen. For example, the demo you saw where, with Persephone that clicked for you and drove you in a new direction in your career. Yeah, it's funny, Paul, because I was just in Washington, D.C., presenting to a large group of uh, federal agencies who are dealing with their own footprint and figuring out their carbon carbon emissions data. Um, and I went back to, you know, my first job out of college was doing phase one environmental site assessments back in the early 90s because banks required such a report for every loan they gave for a commercial transaction. All right. That's key because that was the beginning of my my effort and my work in the area of due diligence on environmental issues. But it's also that same pattern that we see playing out over and over and over again when you step back and look at the sustainability field for 30 years. Right. So the banks came along and said, we will not lend unless there's a standardized approach to a reviewing a commercial transaction. My job was to go inspect the property and look at all the different environmental liabilities that might be there before the bank lent on the on the on the on the on the on the deal. So, with that in mind, think about fast forwarding to today. We have insurers, investors, public asset managers, and private equity firms, banks, and other financial executives all looking at their own due diligence as they lend, insure, invest in different parts of the economy. And that same due diligence mindset exists and has existed in perpetuity for as long as we can think about transactions. So in the environmental field, when I was doing this 25, 30 years ago, we were doing this all manually. We would go to different offices around the county and look up different documents. And we would go to libraries and actually go to title offices and look up the data on the property. Along comes a, a firm called EDR, and they start to automate this process. And EDR still exists to this day. They basically sent all these people out, started digitizing all this documentation that was out there in the world, and it made me less billable, which consultants don't like, right? But it made me more efficient in getting to the point of the report from my client. And so we've seen this automation occur before. And that was 30 years ago that I witnessed EDR coming online and doing that to the consulting field. We've seen it again and again and again. If you think of the ESG ratings world that we've grown up in, Paul, you've seen different entities come, come along and disrupt things. True cost comes along and completely upends the ESG research area. 
by doing estimations using an input-output economic model. True cost gets acquired by S&P, MSCI, Moody's, Fitch, all of the big ESG ratings and research firms are automating a lot of this type of due diligence, but most of them do it from their desks and their offices in New York or London. They're not walking the property. So we're coming to a point now where this executive level interest in sustainability and disclosure is coming into the into the silos of an organization. And let's say the board of directors is saying down to the to the management team, the C-suite, we need to understand our risks and our opportunities here. Now, suddenly, the different departments across an organization are going deeper into their own due diligence. And that's what I've witnessed in my work in the field, and that's what's really fascinating about what we're doing right now. There's no silo that's left untouched when you start to really dive into ESG and carbon accounting. You know, I was reading over the weekend about companies that are giving assurance to insurance companies that are insuring these processes for banks and corporations. So the layers keep developing in this process, depending on the, uh, the expertise and the technology that companies are using. And let's, let's go back now to the actual carbon accounting process and specifically where we are in 2023. You've given us a, a brief history that's brought us up to today. What should companies and investors and asset managers be ready for in the months and years ahead? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question, Paul. And I think it's really important for people to realize that the greenhouse gas protocol is the underlying component of carbon accounting today, right? And the greenhouse gas protocol actually emerged on the scene about 25 years ago. It was created by the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and the World Resources Institute. At the same time the greenhouse gas protocol was being born, the Global Reporting Initiative was being born out of a group organization called Ceres. And so these two different entities, which governing the governing bodies themselves overlapped, so people knew each other and they were doing similar things, one was focused on broader global sustainability disclosure. Let's make sure that everyone does it the same way so that we can compare and contrast two sustainability reports. That was the GRI. Now, in a deeper way, the carbon group gets together and says, we need a carbon accounting approach that we all agree upon. So let's create a multi-stakeholder process and let's develop the greenhouse gas protocol. It's been around for 25 years, right? So if it's 2020, 2023 and your board of directors doesn't understand their own scope one and two, we definitely have a governance issue, right? We have a governance issue because the entire world has woken up in the last three years to these important issues and you can't manage what you don't measure. So if it's 2023 and you have investors, regulators, and your biggest customers asking you for your carbon footprint and you don't know what it is or you don't care to engage and report it, then there is a governance issue. So that takes you to the board of directors level. Then you go down through the corporate secretary, who's generally the, the general counsel of the corporation. That gets you into the C-suite. And as we all know in the U.S., the lawyers aren't really that, that likely to disclose things that are voluntary. So we're moving into this world of compliance now because of the SEC regulation, but also regulation that's occurring in other parts of the world. So in 2023, what every executive needs to know, whether you're a bank, insurer, investor, or running a corporation is that 
you can figure out your scope one, two, and three. It really doesn't have to be as complicated as many might make you think. And you can actually do it using finance-based information that turns your all of your transactions into CO2 equivalents. And that's one of the things that was missed when the greenhouse gas protocol first emerged on the scene. We didn't look at it and read it quite as accurately as we could have. And in today's situation, a lot of the regulatory developments around the world are saying you can estimate these figures based on your spend data. And we can go into that a little bit deeper. Okay. So now one industry that has attracted a lot of sustainability attention in the last six months is banking. What should the banking industry anticipate on the journey to net zero, especially related to financed emissions and scope three greenhouse gas emissions, which you've alluded to already? What's, what's, what does the, the banking industry need to develop to, to recreate stability and confidence in the work that they're doing, especially around financed emissions? Financed emissions is a fascinating area of scope three. <clears throat> it's worth unpacking that a little bit. The greenhouse gas protocol came around 25 years ago, roughly. About five years ago, an organization emerged called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. And that was the category 15 financed emissions piece of scope three that had not gotten fully baked during the 25 years of work by the greenhouse gas protocol stakeholders, right? There's a lot to do when you're developing a standard in a global protocol like this, and they just didn't get to that piece of the puzzle. So all of these investors come along and they sign on to things like PRI and CDP and GFANS and everything else, but they themselves don't fully understand the footprint of their portfolios. And we start to see more and more discussion about that. Well, if you own 10% of that company, then isn't 10% of that company's footprint yours? Well, the math's not that simple. Right? If you insure that company at a certain level of coverage, don't you own some of that carbon risk and that carbon footprint? Yeah, that's probably true, but we need to figure out the math. <clears throat> and that's where PCAF comes into play. Anyone tuning in today should look up PCAF, see the signatories that are involved in that organization, and get involved because this is the future of the mathematics of carbon accounting. And it will continue. Our efforts for 25 years in this field are on a continuous improvement loop, right? We learn something new. We then decide we should go back and figure out the mathematics a little bit better and the methodology. And we're continually improving our processes. For banks, it goes back to the very beginning of my work in this field. You know, the banks didn't want to lend on a deal unless they had certain level of due diligence conducted by a third party, right? The banker didn't want to get up from behind their desk and go walk a facility or a property. They weren't going to go out and get their shoes dirty by walking around a facility, but they wanted an independent, credible third party of engineers to go explore that property and think about the environmental health and safety liabilities. That was the beginning of the phase one environmental site that I mentioned. Well, today, the same thing is going on. If I'm a private equity firm, insurer, or banker, I've got possibly 500 or 1,000 companies in my portfolio, right? Portfolio also equates to a, su a supply chain. If you've got 1,000 suppliers, you have a portfolio of suppliers. So from a distance, what goes on is a company or an investor or a bank will step back and look across the 1,000 companies in that portfolio, and they will look using Persephone and other tools to see who's disclosing and who's not. Those that are disclosing are generally disclosing through public platforms like CDP, 
And we at Persephone have the ability to pull that data in and show you of the thousand entities in your portfolio, 500 are actually disclosing, right? 500 are not. Those are the ones you might want to worry about. Now you're a investor or an insurer. You don't really engage at that level with these companies in your portfolio. So you've never knocked on their door and talked to them about carbon accounting. You've talked to them about their policies and their procedures and inferred them or lent to them. But now we're getting to this point where banks, investors, insurers are knocking on the door and saying, look, I'm scanning my portfolio. I see that you're one of the few that are not disclosing anything in these voluntary markets. We see that regulation is emerging around the world and you do business internationally and your suppliers are international. Are you prepared for the business interruption that might occur? Can you tell me a little bit more about how you're governing carbon risk, climate risk, and how you're measuring, managing, and reporting on these issues? And that's exactly the kind of conversation I'm having today. And it's really just cracked open in the last couple of years. Okay, good. Well, hopefully that will continue to expand and provide more information that we can all use to make good sustainable investment decisions. And by the way, there's a new role in corporate America, which is attracting a lot of attention in our field these days, and that's chief sustainability officer. So what can chief sustainability officers at the corporate level learn from your collaboration with Financial Executives International about building out their company's sustainability program? Chief Sustainability Officers, this term, came about about 20 years ago, actually. And if you look up Ellen Weinrub and her work in this field, you can see a study on this, this area. CSO is nothing new, really. There are a lot of CSOs out there. Uh, more recently, we've seen developments around the title of DE&I. And then my title, Chief Decarbonization Officer, there are, I think there are six or seven of us in LinkedIn when you look, at, look up that title. Um, CSOs generally, now I'm not saying all, but generally have been hired in a way that is the company's reaction to some pressure externally. And so there have been periods in my career where I've seen a bunch of fresh graduates from MBA schools and sustainability get a CSO type of title. They don't know really anything about the company. They don't know where all of the skeletons are in the closets. They don't know politically how to get things done. And some of them failed and, and burned out, right? What I'm noticing more recently is that CSOs are emerging from internal people that have been inside the company for 15, 20 years. Why is that? Because you do have to break down silos. You have to be able to walk down the hall and go to the general counsel's office and say, look, we need to disclose this information. You need to be able to walk over to investor relations and have an in investor relations type of discussion and be able to go into investor meetings with the investor relations officer and have that kind of ESG discussion with major investors. You need to be able to go to marketing and say, look, we can't be greenwashing this anymore. These advertisements, these announcements we're making out of the marketing department, comms department will not fly because we can't back them up. You need to go over to the controller's office and finance and say, look, this is becoming part of a requirement in our financial filings. We can't just thumb it. And, and make up a number. We have the information. We need to get into the details here. So that's what's been really interesting over the last couple of years of my work is we're working with the National Association of Corporate Directors. This is the group that you join if you're on a board of directors in America. You join this group to engage with your peers and understand what other corporate boards are doing about various issues. 
carbon accounting is becoming more prevalent at the board level. The next level down is the Society for Corporate Governance Professionals. That's your general counsel and your corporate secretary. We're publishing with NACD and the society on what these types of people inside of corporations need to know as they measure, manage, and disclose their carbon emissions data. The next one down is investor relations officers. The National Investor Relations Institute is where we engage there and educate and publish and provide webinars that give those types of professionals their awareness about these topics. And the final one is Financial Executives International. This is the association you join if you want to keep up your continuing education credits because you are an accountant, either internal accountant or an external accountant, big four or inside of a company. You need to stay abreast of the most the most um, up-to-date information. So you take courses and you take those courses through FEI. Organization FEI has been around for 90 years. There are about 25,000 members of FEI. And this is the C-suite, the CFO's office that joins FEI to understand what's happening in their world of accounting, but also what do they need to know about carbon accounting. And Persephone is right there educating all of those types of professionals right now. So, Mike, I think if I if I'm hearing you correctly and you just mentioned the CEO uh, of companies as as an office that chief sustainability officers apparently need to have open door access to as well as all of the board uh, room uh, configuration, as well as the, uh, the all of the other key executives within a company uh, that should the, the, the chief sustainability officer should be able to walk into any of those offices and start sit down and start having a conversation right away and people should be listening so uh, this is a fascinating track that we're that we're that we're on right now and there's a lot more to talk about but we're really coming towards the end of our program today. So we'll come back and visit with you another time if that's okay with you, Mike. But for now, where online can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast learn more about Persephone? And how can they get in touch with you with questions about the issues that we've discussed in today's episode? Well, of course, Persephone.com is one place to go. We just fresh freshened up our website. There's a lot of resources there. These co-produced publications uh, are of great value to our, our stakeholders. We're seeing a tremendous amount of downloading and use of these documents. And these are the type of documents that any of you out there in the field can use to go start to communicate with your board of directors, with your general counsel, your corporate secretary, your finance team, your investor relations team. Those are the silos that are most important if you're really going to move this effort forward. You definitely want to be in touch with marketing and communications because we're moving into an area of regulation and compliance. So you don't want to be <clears throat> too far out over your skis making commitments and statements that you might not be able to uh, adhere to. The other thing is follow us on LinkedIn. Um, I'm an avid user of LinkedIn, as so you can follow me there and also Persephone. And any of our recent latest news shows up there. Happy to have phone calls and, and conversations with anybody out there that wants to chat about sustainability and carbon accounting. Great. Well, thank you very much, Mike Wallace, Chief Decarbonization Officer at Persephone. And to our sponsor and for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website at acre.com to get in touch with the right individuals leading the way in your company 
Sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you.